You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. There's a quote from a former head of the Financial Times Bureau in Beijing that goes something like this: "There are only three kinds of stories that international audiences are interested in about China: Big China, Scary China, Weird China." But in my time working on the video desk here at the South China Morning Post, I can tell you there's a type of story that keeps on coming back year after year. Maybe you can call it old China, but the reality of what you see in these stories is more like retired but still very active China. I'm talking about video stories of elderly Chinese people exercising, working out. You've probably seen the images of large groups of Chinese people doing their morning tai chi. So peaceful, so elegant. But if you live on this side of the world, you're probably more familiar with the concept known in Chinese as da ma, known more commonly in English as the dancing aunties. It's a phenomenon that happens here in Hong Kong and across mainland China. An estimated 100 million retirees, mostly women. Head down to the local park with a portable sound system and proceed to bust some moves. They're waltzing. They're pairing up to tango. They're dressing up in all sorts of outfits and dancing to everything from songs of their youth to more modern stuff, like this 2014 track from a Beijing duo called the Chopstick Brothers. The dancing aunties are taking up a lot of space, so much space that the Beijing central government had to step in and build more public squares for them. Over the past ten years, you can track the rise and rise of the dancing aunties. Groups of them have been seen in New York, in Paris, in the Red Square in Moscow, but they're everywhere inside China. Last year, we ran a story showing a group of dancing aunties barging into a park and physically kicking out a group of kids who were learning to rollerblade, which is kind of funny. Except this is not a quirky new trend or a new wave of popular culture. This is the beginning of a tsunami, and building more town squares for people to dance in is the easiest of investments Beijing is going to have to make. China's National Health Commission expects the cohort of people aged 60 and over to rise from 280 million right now to more than 400 million by 2035. That's equal to the entire current populations of Britain and the United States combined. And what happens when these people can no longer dance and the music stops? What happens when 400 million people need assistance getting into and out of the shower each day, when they can no longer climb the stairs or cook and clean for themselves, when the natural process of aging catches up with them and they become blind, deaf, or suffer dementia? And okay, boomer, you're exercising, you're staying healthy, and you're living longer than anyone in history before you. But who's going to pay your pension? Because the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences says pension funds are going to run out in about 10 years' time. This is China's demographic revolution. Welcome to the final episode. Hello, my old China. 
I'm Jasmine Se, and thanks for following us through to the end of this series. And a quick note to you, Zoomers and Millennials, thinking an episode about old people doesn't apply to you. You're going to hear about something us kids from Asian families are very familiar with. It's called filial piety. There's some very deep changes happening to this concept that goes back to the teachings of Confucius. And you're also going to hear me talking to someone about a very taboo subject in Chinese culture: the end of life. Also, there's going to be robots. So far, we've looked closely at the daughters born of the one-child policy, who have been choosing to postpone or just plain cancel their plans for marriage and motherhood. But their parents and their grandparents have been making their own historic contribution to China's population records. They're living longer, much, much longer than at any time in China's history. In 1960, if you were born and raised in mainland China, your life expectancy was 44 years. In 2021, your life expectancy was around 78. That's a 34-year increase in life expectancy. Just for some perspective, if you were born and raised in the United States, your life expectancy as of last year has dropped to 76 years. And fun fact: both leaders of the U.S. and China are working well beyond the official retirement ages for their respective countries. Joe Biden is 80, and in the U.S., the average retirement age for men is 65. Xi Jinping had his 70th birthday just recently. In China, if you're a man, the retirement age is 60. But if you're a Chinese woman working in an office, otherwise known as white-collar work, the retirement age is 55. If you're a woman working in a factory, it's 50. This has serious implications for China's economy because there's millions more people turning 60 this year than there are being born. There's two huge questions facing Beijing right now: who's going to look after all these people when they get really old, and who's going to pay for it? Because the economic reality right now is this. At the moment, each retired person in China is supported by the contributions of five people in the workforce. A decade ago, it was ten working people for each retiree. At the end of this decade, it's going to be four, and in 2050, just two. It's a literal race against time to prepare for what's coming, because 11 out of China's 31 provincial-level jurisdictions are running pension budget deficits. The Chinese Academy of Sciences has forecast the entire pension system is going to run out of money by 2035. Finding the money is one thing, but there are so many other challenges ahead. Winnie Yip is a professor of the practice of global health policy and economics. She's worked on healthcare reforms across Asia, including Hong Kong, Malaysia, Vietnam, and India. But most notably, she's worked on the World Bank's Healthy China study that was used by Beijing central government in formulating its five-year plan on health. Professor Yip, your study talks about healthy aging. What exactly is that? My definition of healthy is rather ambitious, I have to say, because I think every person, whether they're old or not old, and I would say in particular for the elderly persons who actually have contributed so much to society, I think healthy aging, healthy encompass physical health. It also should encompass emotional health, cognitive health, which of course we know that 
dementia, Alzheimer is really rising very fast in China. But I would say also social health as well. Do they maintain relationship that they care so much about? I mean, the way I think about old people, I mean, I tend to like to use the Maslow's pyramid of need to help me think about old people. The basic need is, yeah, they need to be clothed, housed, fed, have medical care, right? The next level we need is some sort of security that includes financial security. The third level would be relationship. Then the, even on a higher hierarchy will be the sense of self-respect, self-esteem. And then finally is what we call self-actualization. That is, oh, people still want to be learning, growing, right? So I thought of healthy aging that encompasses all of them. Let me just recap what Professor Yip is referring to there. If you've studied healthcare, education, sociology, or just about any kind of psychology, you've heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs theory. It helps explain how humans are motivated. Basically, it's a pyramid with five levels, starting at the ground level with physiological needs like air, clothing, food, and shelter. Then there's safety, security, and health. Then belonging, friendship, and love. Then self-esteem. Then at the top of the pyramid, self-respect and self-actualization. This is how Professor Yip applies that to the aging population of China. So China has a department called the Ministry of Civil Affairs. Civil Affairs actually is responsible for the poorest elderly people, but their eligibility rule means that only about 5% of the elderly people fall into that category. So yeah, they want to be sure that they have their house, they are fed, and they are clothed. They also have medical care as well. And they also have sort of like very minimum, basically run nursing home for this group of people. So I think that given China's poverty alleviation program, I think that that very basic level of house and being housed, being fed and being clothed is satisfied. But the next level, even security, financial security, I actually think that there's quite a number of them who is actually not secure in that sense. Because the elderly people we're talking about, they have gone through transition in China's economy. They have not saved that much money. The pension system is actually not quite well running. So I would say that even at that level, it is not quite healthy in the sense that they're worried. They're worried about financially, their future and all of that. They are also worried about being lonely. That's my observation. In May this year, the Beijing central government issued guidance to all of its provinces to build a basic elderly care system. There are directions on providing nursing and caregiving, and all provinces must provide visiting and caring services for elderly, living alone, and for families with financial difficulties. Is this too late? Well, first of all, basic elderly care system is loosely defined. So it's a bit hard for us to say, okay, they have achieved or not achieved. <laughs> I would say that they're making progress, but it's slow. This is how I would analyze it with you. So think about the elderly population in terms of a basic care system. Think about the richest 5-10% of the population. It doesn't really matter. The government doesn't need to do anything because they can go to those very expensive institution care. The 5% who are cared for by civil affairs, not the best care. But that's where they are. So we're talking about the middle 80% of them, which is a big chunk of them. 
that would include, as I say, institution care, community care, but also a lot of aging at home. In my view, the aging at home bit is a bit challenging at this point. Is they might get care, but is it a good standard of care? That's a different question. Now, then the next question of setting up the financing for it, and that's the long-term care insurance that the government is trying to build. And on that, yes, they're moving ahead. So I don't want to make a judgment statement of how far, how well, because yes, they're doing something, but it's not perfect. Is it good or not bad? I think it is still good, better than nothing. And the question is. What are the gaps that remain? Are they continuing to improve? But that's going to take longer than between now and 2025. It's a major, major issue. The other major issue is where are all of these elderly people going to live? One of the assumptions in the West is that there are no nursing homes in China; that everyone lives with their retired parents and grandparents. That used to be true. But there are major challenges and a new reality coming to this age-old cultural tradition. China actually has a policy called ninety seven three. That is, ideally, they would like ninety percent of the old people to be able to age in home, six to seven percent in community care, and only three percent in institution care. But if you're looking at age at home, one of the problem is that, which sounds very mundane, is if you look at the old buildings in China, you have to walk up the stairs for six, five, six flights, and building an elevator has been one of the most challenging things. So all these things, I would say, not quite healthy. The long-term care insurance program is still at its infancy. The government is only piloting it. So, if today I need to go into some institution care, and if I don't happen to be in the pilot city, I have to bear the cost completely. And right there, you hear once again how the type of city you live in—a first, second, or third tier city—affects your future. If the plan is for 360 million elderly people to live at home, there's going to be some serious work to be done. Above and beyond paving some town squares to make space for people to dance in, and if you think these 360 million people are expecting to live in the homes of their sons or daughters, Professor Yip has a surprise for you. Can you talk about how that would be very different for the upcoming elderly generation? Because of the one-child policy, so you don't really have a choice of I may choose to live with my eldest child or my second child. You just have one, and that one child, as a couple, they have parents on both sides. It's very hard for them to live with that. But I would also tell you that actually not all old people in China want to live with their children anyway. Wow. You might find it surprising. Yes. They actually want their kind of independence. Most of them actually say that I like my children to live to not too far away. In case I need them, they are around, but I prefer to not live with them. And there is an increasing trend of that preferences. There's no question about that. As the world opens up, I mean, even older people who are now 60, 70s year old, they use cell phone, right? They have information and all of that. I think their world has also expanded. And I think those who don't want to live with their children is that they actually do not want to continue with that identity that they are a 
parent. Some of them actually said, "I've gotten to the stage of life that I want to do my thing," <laughs> so they should be able to. So it's not such a big deal that oh, I can't live with my children. The question is, if they live independently and then when they get to a stage of disabled, they can't live independently anymore. And since they only have one child and the child may be working in a different city, what are the policy in place to provide care for that situation? And that's exactly what we heard in earlier episodes. The reality of the one-child generation is many of them moved to other cities for work. The first cohort of the Baoling Ho, China's millennials, are entering their 40s. Their parents are moving into their 70s and staying home. So if they're expected to stay in those homes into their late 70s and 80s, who's going to look after them? You talked about financing elderly care, and in Hong Kong, it's very common to see an elderly person being assisted by a full-time helper, usually an Indonesian or Filipino woman. Is that a potential solution for the needs of elderly people in mainland China? Importing someone from the Philippines, Indonesia, on that aspect, I don't think it is a solution or necessary. If you think about the early retirement age in China. For women, which is fifty or fifty-five, depending on whether you work in public and private, and if you're talking about caring for older people who are not disabled, they need someone to sort of make sure they take medication, help them dress, cook for them, go about to go to the park, to go to a medical appointment. If you talk about that type of care, I actually think China has its own labor supply. You don't need to import it. I think China should actually roll out some kind of certification program that makes sure these people go through not a long time, at least a few months of basic training, so you can differentiate who are already trained to do that work versus those who are just I'm just finding a job. So that's my view. So China has its own labor supply. You don't need to rely on others. If you think about Hong Kong, I mean, I come from Hong Kong. If you think about the Filipino, the Indonesians, I mean, are they really good carer for the elderly people? I don't think so. I'm sorry, because if you go back to what I'm saying, healthy aging, it is not just the basic level of clothing, feeding, giving them medication. I mean, how do you engage them in the way that is still stimulating them to think, find life interesting? I think there needs to be some training on that. So we talked earlier about the hiring crisis inside China right now. The mismatch between a generation of students brought up to believe university degrees will get them ahead in life, and the reality of 2023 that the economy needs blue-collar workers. If China can't find people for its factories, how is it going to find enough people to take jobs as carers for 400 million people? Is technology the solution? Can I ask your opinion about the use of robots in aged care? Do you see that being a solution in the next five, ten years? I think robots can play a role in assisting, but robots cannot replace. So, what can robots do? Robots are very good at doing mechanical stuff, right? I mean, I've seen robots that actually, if you program it, they actually know exactly which day of the time, what medication you have to take, right? It's very accurate. 
they go and so they can pick up things and this and that. But there's some study to show that actually robots sometimes increases the sense of loneliness. You're still dealing with this little machine. This little machine, no matter how cute it makes it, they're limited emotional responses. So I do not think it can replace. However, let's say if I'm going to train someone who's not very educated, but who's very warm, who wants to help people, a robot can do all the technical stuff, right? The robot may even be good enough to know on which day they need to make an appointment to see which doctor, what medication, right? And then the person who is not very well trained or educated, but have a good heart and be a good companion can focus on that. So I do think there's a robot, but I don't think they will replace human being. So let me just take a moment here and take a deeper dive into this idea of using robots for aged care. Because it's another one of those stories that we see coming back again and again, year after year, from Chinese and foreign news agencies alike. How robots are going to fix the labor shortage for aged care in China. How nursing homes in China are turning to AI robots. The future of elder care is service robots. Robots are ready and will come to assist the elderly. There's usually no mention of the country just next door to China that's got its own aging population and demographic crisis. And they've got a culture that's loved its robots since the 1960s. Japan has been investing heavily in research and development for robots in aged care and nursing homes for the past 20 years. And James Wright, a research associate at the Alan Turing Institute, spent more than 18 months conducting research into the Japanese nursing homes that use them. He measured the disconnect between the promises of techno-utopianism and their actual use. He's the author of the book, Robots Won't Save Japan, an ethnography of elder care automation. Here's what he reported in the MIT Technology Review in January this year. And yes, we thought it was appropriate to use an AI voice to read his words. In short, the machines failed to save labor. The care robots themselves required care. They had to be moved around, maintained, cleaned, booted up, operated, repeatedly explained to residents constantly monitored during use and stored away afterwards. Indeed, a growing body of evidence from other studies is finding that robots tend to end up creating more work for caregivers. We're a long way from C-3PO. Instead of replacing the labor shortage, he found a reality of robots in nursing homes. You need someone to turn the robot on, boot it up, keep it clean, and make sure it was doing the right job. All it did was take the humanity out of the human in the room, trying to take care of the elderly person. It seems that the most likely scenario for wide-scale use of such robots in residential care would involve, unfortunately, employing more people with fewer skills who would be paid as little as possible. Care facilities would likely need to be much larger and highly standardized to enable economies of scale that could make the cost of robotic devices affordable, 
since they are generally expensive to buy or lease, even with government subsidies. And that's a crucial fact because even though there are around 100 Chinese robotic startup companies specializing in companion and nursing robots, they're struggling to get a level of mass production that makes the end product cheap enough to buy. Let's take an example from the low end of sophisticated tech. There's one company based in Zhejiang who has developed a food delivery robot which can deliver 20 meals to different rooms, but its starting price is 60,000 to 80,000 yuan. That's about eight and a half to 11,000 U.S. dollars. Nursing homes already strapped for cash just can't afford this, and there's a stark reality James Wright points to. Beyond the optimism and promises, while care robots are technologically sophisticated, and those promoting them are usually well-intentioned, they may act as a shiny, expensive distraction from tough choices about how we value people and allocate resources in our societies. Encouraging policymakers to defer difficult decisions, the hope that future technologies will save society from the problems of an aging population. So let me catch you up on this thing that's shared by all the kids from families from East Asia. This thing called filial piety. In modern Chinese, it translates as xiao shen, meaning respect and obedience. Interestingly, filial piety is represented by the Chinese character xiao. The character is a combination of the character lao, meaning old, above the character zi, meaning son. That is an elder being carried by a son. It's something that comes from Chinese Buddhism and Taoism and Confucius. Put simply, it's the respect for your parents, elders, and ancestors. It's much broader than just respect, of course. For many, it's interpreted as the children being responsible for caring for their parents and grandparents. But this dominant feature of family relations in Chinese society affects how China, as a nation, deals with a very touchy subject. So the one thing that we haven't talked about is. It could be a sensitive topic, but I am committed to bring this topic to the public more and more. Is how should Chinese elderly talk about death? We all face death. Western society, we're much more used to saying that let's plan a living will, let's talk to your children that when we're at what stage, don't resuscitate me. Right? Chinese don't talk about that. Right? Death is a taboo. And so we see a lot of old people when they get to a stage of it's not really living anymore; it is just breathing. But they haven't talked about it, and the children, our filial piety, don't want to do anything about it. I think it's suffering, in my view. And I'd like to be able to have whoever share this view to create platforms to help older people when they're younger, when they're still. Their mind is still clear, so that you're not saying that. Oh, he's saying that because he's demented. I don't believe in him. That kind of situation. To have that conversation with their children, with the people they care about, and then when it comes to a stage that they feel they have lived a full life, how to make that decision? That's something I think that China needs to do. The whole society, not only the government, the whole society, the whole family, is not really ready for this wave of aging problem. 
Joe Zin is the editor for the Tech Desk here at the South China Morning Post. He's also the author of a series of opinion pieces looking at this demographic crisis. Actually, China's aging problem is probably unprecedented in human being history, because if we look at human being history, either you know people living very quite short, you know, lifespan is like sixty years. Or you know the percentage of the population is pretty small, but only for like in Japan, like we see aging society. But compared to China's size, the overall population scale, Japan's aging problem would looks like as small as peanuts, because we are looking at China. You know, by the end of this decade, China could have well over three hundred million people aged above sixty, which is current retirement age, which means they are about like three. Times of Japan's total population. China has invested heavily into infrastructure projects, but if you've got a rapidly aging population, those projects simply aren't needed. China has loads of property projects,、uh, high-speed railways, and all these have a very big assumption for many local governments. Is You know the new district population will double in next fifteen years or twenty years, and unfortunately, this precondition does not exist. So, which means we already have seen you know property prices started to fall in the neighborhoods or in the suburbs of like bigger cities around Shanghai, around Beijing, and for many many smaller cities, second tier or third tier cities. If you go there, you can see like one building after another, and huge areas of living community, and all these communities will face the problem of not. Enough people, or you know, they are built for the wrong population, basically. For instance, there's Tiantongyuan, a suburban community in Beijing. Half a million people living there, and of course, you know, when all these people are young, you know, in their thirties and twenties, maybe this is only a traffic jam problem. But imagine, like in next, like. Ten or twenty years, when、uh, half of the population are elders, and the whole community needs renovation to make it more livable. Otherwise, it could be problematic for the whole society. Josine, can I get you to talk about this looming pension fund crisis, which is essentially going to run out of money in around ten years' time? How serious is that? This is very serious because China's pension system. If we look at a little bit of history, it started in the 1990s when you know China started to lay off state-owned enterprise workers from their iron rice bowls. By that time, you know, people realized that okay, we need a pension. So the whole pension system is built upon、uh, pay-as-you-go system, basically. But in reality, it's the young people are paying for the pensioners, basically. So the system can work very well as long as there are many working people, young people there, and the percentage of pensioners are pretty small. And if you look at Guangdong, you know the provincial pension looks more healthier than in, say, northeast China. But this will not. Last, as the working population shrink while the pensioners grow, so there's already some studies from Chinese government institutions, for instance, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. They predicted that at the current rate, you know, China's total pension would be depleted by 2035, and by that time. You know, the only way is like the government either have to spend a huge amount of fiscal money to replenish the pension, or you know they have to think other ways. 
And I'm guessing one of those ways is to increase the retirement age. But asking people to work longer, which means extend the mandatory or the legal retirement age, is still unpopular for most of the working people. As you can see, you know, every 10 years, like France, will talk about raising retirement age, and there will be some riots. And in China, every time they will be talking about extending the retirement age, then there were huge unhappiness voices online. China had already confirmed in 2022 that it would delay retirement ages starting in 2025, and based on a huge outcry online, it's said to be a very unpopular policy. But there are no other choice really. So the government is saying we can do it gradually. Maybe for you are already in 50, maybe you can expect you to retire at the age of 61 instead of 60. But you are in 40, you are possibly will retire at 62. So by doing this, you know we can make it less painful, or at least seemingly less painful. Josine, let me take you back to the other end of the scale. Local governments have also been implementing various measures to encourage more births. But what does that mean for the aging problem? There's a saying in Chinese, you know, the water afar cannot be carried to put down the fire at the moment, right? So it's really kind of long-term solution, but it cannot solve the immediate problem of the aging. And also, if you look at Japan and South Korea or Taiwan, it's extremely difficult to encourage births when people have this mindset that one isn't enough or two is definitely the maximum. So no matter how much money you provide to the household, they just will not have as many children as the previous generation. Josine, everything seems to point back to the one-child policy. The government thought its way into this problem. Can it think its way out of it? Well, this is a very good question. I mean, 40 years ago, this is a population explosion when people worry there are too many people on the planet. I think this is a by that time, you know, a very widely accepted truth. So it's not only the Chinese government is thinking in this way. But the problem is, the Chinese government has all this state capacity to implement this one-child policy so ruthlessly for 35 years. So, 35 years of coercion and control. What do you think are the chances that the government can just do a U-turn and be encouraging and supportive of women? So I think if there's one chance, really, or one lesson,、uh, really, for the Chinese government to take from its history, its past, is that it has to be more open to different voices and has to, you know, listening to people's ideas instead of sticking to one belief and believe that this is a truth for history and then carries on with all the powerful kind of state apparatus. Back in episode one, I mentioned how the one-child policy was proposed by a group of male rocket scientists. These men were obviously successful in lowering the birth rate, but they could never have foreseen how the policy has given birth to a generation of women who are now taking hold of their reproductive rights. And so China, for now, of course, it has to completely redesign its policy to handle the aging population and to encourage people to have kids. I think one thing the government really has to consider is to listen to what people is actually thinking instead of like relying two or three experts in a closed room and then draft a policy affecting millions, hundreds of millions of families. Sounds like it might be time to listen to the women. <laughs> oh yes, definitely. <laughs> So let me leave you with a quote from a man who ran a one-party socialist state under Communist Party rule. The man was Fidel Castro. He said, "A revolution is a struggle between the future and the past. 
To get to the future, Beijing is going to have to reconcile with its past. This is China's demographic revolution. Of course, this kind of crisis isn't unique to China. As Josine mentioned, it's happening in Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, as well as the United States. But it's certainly a crisis with Chinese characteristics. Working on this series has taught me a lot. I've heard of the one-child policy before, but it was my first time speaking to some of the women in mainland China born during those policy years and hearing how their upbringing has influenced the decisions they're making right now. The news always talks about China's record-high youth unemployment rate, but it was my first time learning that people who are the same age as I am are demanding for equality and fairness in the workplace even if that means quitting their jobs amid a hiring crisis. I was born and raised in America, and over in the States right now, people are practicing quiet quitting and bare minimum Mondays as a protest against the hustle culture. But the lying flat and letting it rot movements in China are so much more than that. They're a protest against the very values and foundations that are so vital to the Chinese Communist Party's rule. And also, I live with my 83-year-old grandma in Hong Kong. She's very sprightly and healthy. I don't need to help her walk or help her get dressed. I just do the house chores, the occasional grocery shopping, and teach her how to use her smartphone. But as Professor Yip mentioned, the inevitable talk about elderly care and death is going to come up at some point. How do I even start that conversation? This series would not have been possible without the help of my colleagues reporting in mainland China, Luna Sun, Mandy Zuo, and Echo Xie. Also, huge thanks to all my colleagues on the video desk who lent their voices for many, many reads. And a lot of the material they read from was translated from Chinese social media, thanks to the website What's on Weibo. And yes, we are subscribers. This series was written and produced by Jared Watt and me, Jasmine Se. Thanks for listening. And as always, remember you can find all the latest news, the best analysis from our 24-hour newsroom at scmp.com. Bye for now.